Today we're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 and reading through verse 16. We have been in a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a chronological walk through the life of Jesus using all four of the Gospels. We're going verse by verse through all four of the Gospels, but harmonizing them, doing it in a chronological fashion. And we've been in Matthew for a while now because we have come to the Sermon on the Mount. And we were going through the Beatitudes, uh, doing a sermon on each Beatitude. So we were going through the Beatitudes rather slowly. And now we have come out of the Beatitudes and getting into the rest of the sermon. And so we will be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 this morning. Now as you're turning there, I want to share with you a very touching story about a bagpipe player who who certainly wanted to make a difference in this world. He wanted to use his giftedness for the Lord. I'm just going to read to you his story. He says, As a bagpipe player, I play many gigs. Recently I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man. He had no family or friends, so the service was to be at a pauper's cemetery in the back country. As I was not familiar with the backwoods, I got lost, and being a typical man, I didn't stop and ask for directions. I finally arrived an hour late and saw the funeral director had evidently gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. There were only the diggers and the crew left, and they were eating their lunch. I really felt bad about being so late, and I apologized to the men. I went to the side of the grave and looked down, and the vault lid was already in place. I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played my heart and soul for this man who had no family and no friends. I played like I had never played before for this homeless man. As I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept, I wept, We all wept together, and when I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head hung low, my heart was full. As I opened the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, I've never seen nothing like that before, and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. Not quite as touching of a story as you thought it was going to be in the beginning. I share that story, and I purposely wanted that story to sort of mislead you for the purpose of simply pointing out that many times we live our lives in such a way that we think we are making a great difference in the world, and even many in the church are misled by the way they they live their Christian life and are doing things that in the end end up being meaningless or misguided. This poor man in this humorous story here, his actions were meaningless. They They were misguided. In today's text, Jesus warns those who profess to be his followers that we are not to live a misguided and meaningless life. And so to get that point across, he gives us two analogies that we're very familiar with. These two analogies of salt and light. So I want you to stand now, if you would, as we read this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 13. This very familiar passage of Scripture. As a matter of fact, I want us just to As you're reading it, I want you to think about it. Think about every word and think about it as we read it slowly because we walk around and we say, oh, we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. I don't even think we know what that means. So let's think carefully here as we read this passage of Scripture this morning. 
Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture now, we want to be who you are challenging us to be. We want to live in the way that you are calling for us to live. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just do a work in our hearts this morning, that we would understand the context of this salt and light reference that Jesus is giving here. We would understand why Jesus is now saying this to his disciples as they gather around him for this Sermon on the Mount. And I pray, Father, that we'd understand how we are to apply it to our lives today. So give me a mouth to speak. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open up all of our ears to hear. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I said a minute ago, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. And Jesus uses these two analogies to explain what Christians or Christ followers, or as I've been saying throughout this Sermon on the Mount, kingdom citizens, what they are to be about. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in this sermon. So this is a sermon spoken to kingdom citizens about kingdom living. And these two analogies would have really struck Jesus' audience. It would have really struck these disciples. We often say that we need to be salt and light, but these analogies don't strike us the same way they did Jesus' hearers because we take both of these things for granted. We have salt sitting on our tables in little shakers, and we drive to the corner convenience store to grab some more whenever we're out. And we walk into a room, and we, we go and we flick a little switch And all of a sudden, light is there. So we have salt and we have light available to us at our disposal 24-7. But in Jesus' world, both of these two elements were very vital to life. And they were not to be taken for granted. Salt and light were not things to be taken for granted. Salt, as you may already be aware of, was very important in the ancient world. It was used for a lot of things. Primarily, it was used as a preservative to keep meat from rotting. So if you had a piece of meat, you would rub salt all over it to keep it from rotting. People still use it for those purposes today. Maybe you, we live in the South. Maybe you've received a salted ham at some point in your life. That's, that's how that process works. Salt was rubbed all over this raw meat to keep it from rotting. But salt was also used as an antiseptic or a disinfectant. It was used to fight disease. Matter of fact... We even see this in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4. We see the ancient practice of rubbing salt on a newborn baby to fight off any sort of disease or to deal with any sort of infections. Uh, It was also used for what we mostly use it for today, which is to season food. We read of that in Job 6, 6. It was also used, though, in Jesus' day as a token of friendship or a token of kindness. There was an ancient Arabic phrase that said, There is salt between us, or let there be salt between us. Which simply meant that there was friendship between the two parties. And we we actually read this in Ezra chapter 4 verse 14. We read of salt being a 
symbol of a relationship or an agreement between two parties. Salt was a valuable, valuable commodity in Jesus' day because of all these reasons. Matter of fact, it was so valuable, sometimes it was used as currency. Perhaps you've heard this, that Roman soldiers were sometimes paid salt wages. That's where the phrase comes from. He's not worth his salt. Okay? So salt was used as a currency. Matter of fact, that's where we get the word salary from. Maybe you're not aware of this. The word salary, if you think about it, the etymology of the word, the root word here is the same as the root word for saline. So a salarium in Latin was a salt wage paid to a Roman soldier. And of course, salt was then and still is today a very important part of being healthy. We need salt in our bodies. That's why, like when Noah was in the hospital, they, they put saline solution that they were putting into his body. And all animals need salt. So even like Olivia's rabbit, we have this little salt lick in the rabbit cage that the rabbit can go up and lick the salt. And humans are no different. We need salt for life. Now light, obviously, was very important. And few of us here in our electric age with lights and flashlights, few of us can understand what true darkness really was all about. Perhaps you've been out camping or something like that and you've experienced something closer to what people would have felt during Jesus' day, but there wouldn't have been all the electric lights from the city kind of lighting up the sky. When it was nighttime, it was dark. You had the moon and you had the stars and you had whatever else, other type of light you could generate from fires or from an oven or from a fire pit or, or maybe some little flame flickering on the end of an oil lamp. We probably can't imagine trying to walk around our house with a little oil lamp to guide our way. But in the deep darkness of a pre-electricity world, that little lamp was huge. It was hugely important. One would be a fool to hide it away. It would be silly to put it under a bowl. It would be a waste of that oil. So here Jesus is saying that we are salt and we, kingdom citizens, are light. And therefore we are of great value. But why does Jesus call his kingdom citizens? Why does he call Christians salt and light? Well, answering that question is important. But I'm afraid as I read on this and you look at commentaries or even you listen to sermons on this text, sometimes we focus so much on, on salt and light and what that means to be a Christian, to be salt and light. And sometimes you've heard sermons and they go through all the different uses of salt and try to apply that in some sort of way. I, I think that we will talk a little bit about that, but that, I think that misses the main point of what Jesus is trying to say here. So to understand what the main thrust here of Jesus' words, we need to recap a little bit. Okay, Jesus has just begun the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving his disciples, as he begins this Sermon on the Mount, eight Beatitudes, blessings. Okay? In doing so, he is in essence marking out the traits or the characteristics of kingdom citizens. And then he gives them important promises that come to each one of those who have these traits within them. Now remember, these traits, these Beatitudes, are divine works of God in the hearts of all true believers... And these traits are contrary to what the world would say when it comes to being blessed. The world would say there's other things that you need in order to be a blessed person. But Jesus says that all true believers are blessed who are poor in spirit. These are people who have had their eyes opened by God to their own spiritual destitution. They are blessed because only people who see their own sin can ever be part of the kingdom of heaven. And true believers mourn. They mourn over their sinful state and therefore they repent of their sin and are subsequently comforted. 
And all true believers are, are blessed because they are meek. They do not try to vindicate or justify themselves before God. Instead, they let God be their justifier. And in faith, they rest in him. They rest in the promise that one day they will inherit the earth. That's the first three of these Beatitudes. It's an emptying process as we've talked about. Then we read the fourth Beatitude is once we're empty, we're filled with something. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness and we are filled and happy are those who hunger and thirst for God's character, for God's goodness. We seek the very character of God. And when we are filled, we read that, that we are merciful for we are indeed shown the mercy of God. And we have purity of heart and we know that we will see God. And we are blessed because we are peacemakers and therefore we look like our Father and we will indeed be called sons of God. And finally, we are blessed as we read these Beatitudes because the more and more and more we look like our Father, the more the world will hate us. And we are blessed for that. Happy are the harassed. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, in the context here, Jesus has been talking about the traits of being a kingdom citizen. And part of that is that he tells them they're going to undergo trial. They are going to be mistreated. And thus he reminds them by the way of these two analogies that they are to be different. They are to exhibit all these beatitudes and they are to persevere. This salt and light reference is primarily a call for kingdom citizens to persevere. That's what this call is, salt and light. Let's read it again. He doesn't simply say, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, period. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And then he goes on to warn us not to fall away. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, persevere. And then he says, you are the light of the world. And then he goes on to show us that it's foolish for light not to do its job. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, persevere. This is a call for kingdom citizens to persevere. Kingdom citizens are those who will persevere to the end, and true kingdom citizens will persevere to the end. This passage is parallel to other passages in Matthew, like Matthew 10, 22, which says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So in light of the persecution, you're going to be hated because of me. Just like the Beatitudes, you're going to exhibit the character of God and the world's going to hate you and you should be happy and blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. So right after that, after telling them they're going to be persecuted, he tells them to endure. So this salt and light reference is a call for them to endure, just like it is in Matthew 10 or in Matthew 24, 13. After Jesus vividly illuminates to his disciples the suffering that would befall them in the last days for his namesake, he again says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is how the Bible speaks of Christians. This is perseverance of the saints. And consider these words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 10, Revelation 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
So we need to take these passages, including this salt and light passage, as a call to persevere. We are to be salt and light, and we are to see this as an encouragement to endure, to hold our confidence firm to the end. And all those who are truly are Christians will remain salty. And all those who truly are Christians will shine. Notice it says here that Christians are salt and light. You are salt. Jesus doesn't say, hey, be salt or become salt or try to be salty. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And since you are the salt of the earth, you inevitably will be salty. Unless you're the type of salt that isn't salty. And the salt that isn't salty is thrown out. It's not even considered salt anymore. Remember I said salt was a valuable commodity. Yet salt that's lost its saltiness is salt that is thrown out and treated like dirt and dust. You see, there was a salt in Palestine that wasn't really salt. As you walked along the pathways and the roadways around the Dead Sea, people would accumulate white dust on their feet. And as this white dust accumulated, that was simply the remains. That was corrupted salt. And no one, after walking by the Dead Sea, would go then take their foot and scrape that salt off their foot into their food. It would make no sense. That was not valuable at all. So Jesus is calling us to be who we really are if we're truly Christians. To be salt. To be valuable to the world. Jesus didn't say become light or try to be light. He said you are the light of the world and therefore you will inevitably shine. You cannot be hidden. You shouldn't be hidden because you are light. Friends, if there is no saltiness in someone who claims to be a believer, and if there is no luminosity, no light, then there is no confidence that that person is in any way a kingdom citizen. We are called to see these beatitudes and to endure. We are to embrace these promises and persevere, especially when we experience mistreatment and persecution. So this is a call for kingdom citizens to persevere. But what are we to persevere in doing or being? There are three things this morning that these two analogies, both salt and light, help us to see. First, we are to persevere in being different from the world. Different from the world. The world, the earth, is not salty. It needs God's people. The earth is in decay. It's like dead meat. And it needs the salt of God's people to prevent decay and to fight the infection of sin. So God's people are called to be different from the earth. The world is dark. It needs God's people. The earth is dark, pitch black with sin. And it needs the light of God's people to expose sin and to light the way. So God's people are to be distinct from the world. These analogies make it clear. We are to be different from the world. This is what God has been doing from the very beginning. He's been setting apart a people for himself. A people who would be very different from this fallen world. A people who would be reconciled to himself and therefore they themselves become ministers of reconciliation. And we kind of talked about that this morning as we talked about why is discipline necessary in the church? Because if we don't deal with sin, unrepentant sin in the church, we're just acting like the world. But we're called to be different from the world. We're called to be distinct. This is what God was calling Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when he said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. He was promising to set apart a people for himself, a covenant people set apart 
from the pagan nations around them. And so he takes Israel, his treasured possession, and says to them, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine in Leviticus 20, verse 26. And so he calls on them to be different. Deuteronomy 18, he says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. They were to be set apart. They were to be different. They were to be distinct. Israel, by and large, failed, but God did not fail. So we come to the new covenant, and through Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. And now God, through the blood of Christ, grafts Gentiles into his people. So we read in Romans 9, 29, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And so we, possessing the Holy Spirit, have been united to Christ and have been called out to be holy as our God is holy. We have been called to be different. We are no longer part of the rotting corpse that is this dead world. Death is spread to all men because all have sinned. The world is dead and so were we, but we were made alive. For we have had our eyes open to the gospel. And the gospel is no longer a fragrance of death to death. It is the fragrance of life to life. And so now we are separate, we are different, we are spiritual salt. Set apart from the decaying flesh that is this world. And so we must be salty. We must be salty people. Now, what did Jesus mean here? When does a salt, when does salt lose its saltiness? Can you answer that question? When does salt lose its saltiness? Does anyone know? Or how about this? Can salt lose its saltiness? Technically, no. Matter of fact, sodium chloride is um, one of the most stable mineral compounds in the world. It cannot lose its saltiness. But Jesus says here, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. It's said to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So we need to understand here what this phrase means when Jesus says salt has lost its taste. It was a common phrase in Jesus' day to refer to salt losing its taste. If it's translated literally, it literally means that the salt has become foolish. Okay, so we, we have the word taste there, or maybe your translation says saltiness. I don't doubt any of your translations say the salt has become foolish, because I think that would be a little bit hard for us to understand. But here, that's the literal translation, so this literally says that the salt has become foolish, which means that the salt is now worthless. That's what that phrase means. The salt has become Worthless. Jesus is not making a blunder about the chemical composition of sodium chloride. Jesus is making a statement using a common phrase in his time to refer to salt that has become worthless. It's no longer useful. It's become corrupt. How did that happen in Jesus' day? Well, there was some salt that would be taken from salt marshes or even from the Dead Sea that sometimes would be unusable because it would have other elements, other things in it that made it corrupt. So it tasted foul. You'd taste this all, oh, it has other impurities mixed in with it. And it wouldn't function to help keep meat from rotting because it had impurities in it. It actually sped up the rot. That was useless salt. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is warning against corruption entering into those who claim to be his people. Jesus is warning against the adulteration of the gospel. He is warning against the adulteration of his words. From the very earliest days of the church, there have been false gospels, gospels that have become foolish. 
Gospels that were no longer pure, salt. And that's what he's warning us against. It's the same in our day. Friends, there are hundreds of saltless Gospels out there. There are social Gospels that tell us as long as we do enough good deeds to help people out of their bad circumstances in life, the world will be renewed and made into a better place. But there's no talk of the cross. There are Gospels that speak of it. So long as you have enough faith, you're going to be able to have health and wealth and everything's going to go okay for you. But there's no discussion of the cross. There's Gospels that say, you know what, so long as you believe, you're okay. And there's no discussion of repentance. There's no discussion of the cross. These are saltless Gospels. Empty, worthless, saltless. They're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is a warning from Jesus not to become corrupted. Not to let the church become corrupt. Galatians 1, 6 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who troubled you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And what is the one we've received? It's the one that is clearly taught in the scripture. We are called to be different. We are called to be pure. That's why doctrine is important in the church. How do churches become saltless churches when they don't give a rip about doctrine? It is important, guys. Doctrine is so important to the church. Purity is important. Holiness is important. We are called to be different and pure. We are called to be salt. But we are also called to be light. And light is not anything inherent in us. Matter of fact, we are only light because Jesus is in us. After all, Jesus calls himself the light of the world in more than one place in the scriptures. Yet here he calls us the light of the world. Well, how does that work? Well, John 8, 12 says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So those who follow him, his kingdom citizens, Christians, however you want to say it, they have the light of life in them. And thus by virtue of their union with Christ, they become light. So it is Christ shining through us. It is Christ's light in us. So now we are no longer citizens of the kingdom of darkness. Instead, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. At one time we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord, according to the apostle Paul. And so now we shine because he shines through us. And so we are called to be holy and pure, to be different. We are to let that light shine. But friends, we are not to just be different to be different. I think some people like being different. Have you ever met people that like being different? I mean, we saw a dude walking down the road the other day. I was taking Noah from a class. And I mean, this guy had the weirdest hairstyle I've ever seen in my life. And I immediately thought, that guy takes much pride in being very different from everyone else. He looked crazy. He's either different or foolish. I'm not sure which. But some people just enjoy being different. Oh, yeah, I'm a different. I'm a Christian. I'm different. We are different for a purpose. And so that's the next point. Okay? It's so that we might penetrate the world. 
so that we might penetrate the world. This is a call for kingdom citizens to persevere, to persevere in being different from the world so that we might penetrate the world. So salt is rubbed onto meat. Okay? It is applied to the meat to keep it from spoiling. Salt does not do good if it just sits separate from the meat. If salt, if you take a, a bowl of salt and put it over here and put your big old slab, your piece of ham over here and you walk away, so okay, there's salt, there's ham, salt, do your job. And you walk away, you come back and the ham will be rotted. The salt has to be taken and it has to be rubbed into the meat. It has to permeate the meat. It has to penetrate the meat. And light penetrates darkness. When you turn on the light switch, there's no question of what's going to win. The darkness or the light. The light always wins. Boom! It penetrates the darkness. And that's what we are called to do. We are called to penetrate the darkness. I read a little quote, or uh, an illustration about uh, the author, Robert Louis Stevenson, when he was a child, back then, they would have a lamplighter go down the road there in, in England, and it would light each one of the different lamps, and he he was watching this in amazement, and he called out to his nanny, and he said, I am watching a man punching holes in the darkness. And that's what we are called. We are, Christians are to be people who punch holes in the darkness. We're not a light lit in a separate room. We are a light lit in this dark room, this dark world. Friends, this text today condemns the idea that we are to be holy hermits. That we are to hide away in Christian bubbles. This decimates the current trend in so many to try to isolate themselves from this decaying and dark world. We are called to do just the opposite. But Christians have always struggled with this. Monasticism was born out of this idea that people needed to escape from the world. And monasticism is alive and well today. We call it by a lot of other names. In America in particular, we have everything we need to hide away from the world. We have our own radio stations, we have our own music, we have our own clothing lines, we have our own celebrities, we have our own schools, heck, we even have our own fast food joint, Chick-fil-A, right? We have everything we need to hide away from the world. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't partake of some of those graces, but what I am saying is that the scriptures give us no ground to use Anything, any of those things or anything else as a means to hide away from the world. We are called to penetrate the world. To do otherwise, to be in direct opposition to what Jesus says here. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. There is a story that I uh, read this week and. Um, the little bit of research I was able to do on it, um, it, it seems like it was, it's a true story. Now, whether or not any of it's been um, changed since it happened, but sometime in the 5th century, there was a monk named Telemachus. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce his name. We'll, we'll call him that, Telemachus. Now, he, like most of the other monks of his day, during that period of church history when monasticism was huge, went out to the desert and hid away from the world in an attempt to try to be closer to God, to try to be more holy. And as he read the scriptures, in particular, as he read the Sermon on the Mount, he was convicted. And he realized that he needed to love God in such a way that it was a selfless love, not a selfish love. And he was to serve. He was to penetrate this world with the gospel. So he decided to return to the city, to return to Rome where the sin was, 
where there was great need. So he headed for Rome, and at that time in Rome, there was still, they were still practicing, despite the fact that Rome claimed to be a Christian empire, they were still practicing gladiator games. And at that time when he returned, a Roman general had just won a great victory over the Goths, and they had put these Goth prisoners into this uh, stadium and made them fight each other to the death. In Telemachus, he arrives, and the day of the games, he hears the noise. He walks into the arena, and he sees 80,000 people celebrating with great bloodlust. And he was aghast by all of this. He was, he was cut to the heart by what he saw, especially from those who claimed to be a Christian people. And he ran into the middle of the arena there, and... He jumped to the arena. He stood between the two gladiators. He implored them to stop. The crowd was furious that their entertainment had been delayed. They began to shout at him. They began to threaten him. Finally, the crowd invaded the arena there. And they took this monk and they took him out and they stoned him to death. And three days later, the Roman emperor, after having seen what Telemachus did, canceled the gladiator games. And it was the last time they were ever done. The gladiator games ended at that point, and he declared Telemachus a martyr. I say that simply to give us an illustration. We are not called to hide away in the desert. We are called to stand between a world at war with itself, with the gospel, even if it means we die, even if it means that we are killed. It is foolish and against the purpose of light to hide it. It's silly. So we're not to be, we are to be distinct, but not distant. We are to be separate, but not separatists. We are to be holy, but not hermits. And how hard it is for us to find that balance. And that's why we look to Christ, who was a friend of sinners, yet he was no friend of sin. He was a friend of sinners, but an enemy of sin. And Jesus knew it would be hard for us. That's why he prayed for us in John 17. John 17, 14. Jesus' high priestly prayer for us, he says this. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Make them holy. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And the key there is being sanctified by his word. How do we know how to find that balance? How do we know how to exist in a world that's got so many negative influences? Friends, the answer is that what I come back to over and over again every week is this book right here. The more we have this word, the word of Christ dwelling richly among us, the more we know how to be salt and light in the world. And we won't be holy hermits that hide away. And we won't be fools who engage with what the world engages in. We'll be salt and we'll be light because the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. We are sanctified by this word. We are set apart by this word. God uses this as a means to make us the people he wants us to be. Holy people that are not like the world, but who are able to go in and change the world with the gospel. That's what we are called to be. And that's what God accomplishes through his word. This was always God's purpose for his people. He told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as I read earlier in Genesis 26, 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. But then he goes on to say, so that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He set apart a people to bless the world. Salt of the earth. Light of the world. 
To Israel, God says this in Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And using language previously reserved only for the ethnic people of Israel, but now spoken to the church, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then a couple of verses later, verse 12 of 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that sound like? Matthew 5, 16. They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. And so we are to proclaim these excellencies to men everywhere, and we are to keep our conduct pure. That's being salt and light in the world. We are to act like salt. And salt, friends, have you ever put salt in a wound? Okay, people talk about rubbing salt in the wound. That's not a positive thing. Oh, now he's rubbing salt in the wound. But it was a means of antiseptic in the ancient world. It can still be used today, but it burns like the dickens. How many of y'all ever had methylade? Do you remember methylade? Oh my goodness, my granddad. He would whip out the methylade for anything. You got a mosquito bite that you scratched open. Whoop! He's coming out with the methylade, that little bottle with that reddish, pinkish stuff. And he put it with stain like your skin for days. Oh my goodness, it hurt so bad. He put that on you. And so if you can't, kids, you don't understand this. These young kids are going, what? Because they got all this little foam you put on and it feels like tingly or something. You don't understand there was a day when getting infection out of a cut hurt like the dickens. I'm still scarred over it. So our message of the gospel will not be received by a world that's infected with sin in a positive light. It burns. It cuts. It hurts. And the world does not like it. We must act like salt as we fight the infection of sin and prevent the decay of sin. And we proclaim the hard truth of the gospel. We proclaim the light. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. The church is called to expose sin. That's hard to do because we know the world isn't going to like the methylate and they're going to get angry at us. But we're called to take that light and expose sin. And we are to, to be salt and light and we are to keep our conduct honorable, which means we are to be humble and meek and peaceable in the way we do this. Colossians 4 or 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Verse 6 let your speech always be gracious. Do you know what the next phrase is? Seasoned with salt. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are to be salt and light because we have the gospel. The gospel drives us to speak the truth, but enables us to speak the truth in love. It drives us to speak the truth, but it enables us to speak the truth in love. Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the world is not going to like it when we bring this message to them. And we must declare it, and our lives must be carried out in a way that's in accordance with the gospel. 
And that's what seems to be Jesus' main focus here in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works, your actions, your deeds, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Christians, we are to proclaim the gospel with our mouths and we are to demonstrate the gospel with our lives. The gospel therefore changes the way we speak and it changes the way we work and the way we act and the way we do things. So our good deeds flow from the gospel at work within us. Good deeds, good works to the benefit of mankind have inevitably followed gospel proclamation. If you look at the history of the church, as Christianity, as the gospel has truly spread, so have many things like medical advances, educational advances, societal advances, political advances. For much of the history of the world since Christ has come, much of the benefits that we see in our world today are simply the result of the church being salt and light. The effect of people who are living out the gospel This changed their life. And so it should be no different today. It should be no different in our lives. Our good deeds should point to the gospel. But as our good deeds point to the gospel, we shouldn't be afraid to proclaim the gospel, knowing that it's going to feel like methylate or like salt on an open wound. So here's our last point for this morning. We are to persevere in being different from the world, so that we might penetrate the world in order to change the world for the glory of God. In order to change the world for the glory of God. And I hope you guys know in this church what we mean by change the world for the glory of God. That means we change the world with the gospel. Even this morning, someone in our prayer time was asking prayer for a for a, a homeless person that they had befriended and was helping out. And there were certainly concerns for the person's physical needs, and we're trying to deal with those physical needs. We're going to talk about how we can meet that person's physical needs. But ultimately, the greatest need underneath all those physical needs is the need for the gospel, for the person to hear and respond to the gospel. In the same way, let your light shine before others. They may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we're truly salt, we are salty salt. And if we're truly light, luminous light, then God gets glory. Only then, friends, when we're giving God glory by being salt and light, are we doing what we've been made to do. We're no longer bagpipe players playing over trash. We are doing what we've been created to do. And Christians will enjoy the glory of God forever. And Christians do enjoy the glory of God and glorify God to the degree to which they are salt and light. We give great glory to our Father in heaven when we persevere. Persevere in being different from the world so that we might penetrate the world in order to change the world. Then and only then are we operating rightly. Then and only then are we being who we were created to be. Then and only then are we living our calling. You see, because we have been called to change the world with the gospel. We have been called to be ministers of reconciliation. I read the first part of this passage earlier, and I'm going to let it lead us into our conclusion this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is being salt and light as we go out, proclaim the gospel, and try to see men reconciled to God. We are ministers of reconciliation, shedding the light of the gospel, and thus showing that indeed God is a God of great mercy and kindness. You know, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, Salt was included in the sacrifices. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. You can read of it in Leviticus 2, 13, or in Ezekiel 43, 23, that salt was sprinkled on the sacrifices as they were brought before the Lord. And in Exodus 30, 35, we read that the incense also had, was seasoned with salt. And then in Numbers 18, 19, all the contributions that the people were to bring to the Lord were to be considered a covenant of salt forever to the Lord. So salt was added to the Old Testament sacrifices to symbolize their purity and their permanence. But friends, those Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to a more pure and a more permanent sacrifice. We are salty because a perfectly pure and a positively permanent sacrifice for sin has been made on our behalf. For all those old covenant sacrifices pointed to the final and most permanent sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus who after absorbing God's wrath against sin, he said, it is finished. It is done. So now we are the salt of the earth declaring that he died for sin once for all. And we are ministers of reconciliation, shedding the light of the gospel, declaring the sacrifice of the Son that brings people into a new relationship with God, into a new covenant. Second Chronicles 13, 5, speaking of this covenant of salt, it says, Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave kingship of Israel over forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? You see, David and his sons were called to, to reign on God's behalf forever. But David failed. He died. His sons failed. His grandsons failed worse. His great-grandsons failed worse and worse. And the kingdom was torn away from the throne of David until the son of David came, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, heir to the throne. And he ushered in and is ushering in a heavenly kingdom sealed by a greater covenant, the new covenant of his blood. Oh, friend, have you been covered by that covenant? Have you been covered by the blood of Christ? Have you been bathed in that blood? That's blood that'll make you salty. That's blood that'll make you shine. For upon him was laid the iniquity of us all, that whoever believes in his name might be saved. Friends, if you're an unbeliever here today, your giftedness, your passions, everything about who you are, if you're not united to Christ by faith, you haven't repented from your sins and turned to Christ alone, you are like a bagpipe player using all that giftedness to play over trash, dung, as Paul would put it, turn to Christ. Let him point you in the right direction so that you might be salt and you might be light. And you might give it all for the glory of God. You might become salt and light in this dark and decaying world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at this world that we're in today and we see just darkness that seems to be spreading. The decay seems to be spreading. The infection seems to be spreading on the airwaves, on the internet, in our neighborhoods. We just see it. We hear it. Marriage is being turned upside down. What was right is now being called wrong, and what is wrong is being celebrated. 
in a thousand other ways. It just seems like the darkness is closing in. But Lord, it's to our shame that we hide away under bushels. It's to our shame that we try to separate ourselves in a way that we no longer impact the world for the gospel. Father, I pray that we would leave here with this message of salt and light and understand that we are going to be hated. If we learned anything from last week's look at that last beatitude, we are going to be hated, we are going to be persecuted because of our faith. We are going to be mistreated because you are alive in us and the world hated you, so it hates us. And so we are not called then to hide away from the world because of that. We are called to persevere because of that. So, Father, I pray that you would stir up a spirit of perseverance in us, that we would keep sharing the gospel, that we would keep shining our light, that we would keep doing what we do, our deeds, our actions that are in accordance with the gospel, so that when the onlooking world looks at us and makes fun of us and thinks we're old-fashioned or whatever else they might want to say or thinks we're bigoted or whatever, that we may simply do it and give you glory, whether that means we're stoned or we're admired. It doesn't matter. Father, I pray that you would use us for your glory. Every action, every deed, every word. May we be salt this week as we leave this place. And may we be light. If there be anybody in here that has an unbelieving heart. A hardened heart. Lord, I pray that you would soften that heart. Anyone in here that may think they're a believer. They don't want to be salt. They don't want to be light. They want to be liked by the world. They want to be applauded not hated. Father, I pray that you would save them. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see who they were created to be. And that if they have you in them, if they have the light of Christ in them, they will persevere to the end. So God, give us perseverance. Give us endurance. Don't let us fall away. Make us salt and light in everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.